TorahCafe.com. So the editor of a um, publication known as the American Spectator, Jay Homnick is his name, once related a story that happened to his father, Dr. Homnick's father, who was a preeminent psychologist. He said that once he attended a lecture, a distinguished lecture that was to be given by a certain Dr. Reich, who was a preeminent psychologist, a disciple of Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis. The topic of the discussion of Dr. Reich was, why is it that so many cultures, peoples, religions, have in the genesis of their story a major flood that destroys humanity or much of humanity, after which a new civilization is built, beginning from the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, to many other cultures and traditions. There's always this myth, Dr. Reich said, about a flood. And he explained it, of course, from a Freudian perspective. How deep down in the psyche of every human being, we have a very deep fear of annihilation. Sometimes it's repressed, sometimes it's on the surface, but it's there. And therefore, we project that fear onto reality, even if it's something of the past, and every culture is naturally compelled to create that type of myth where there was a flood, like the Bible, and like so many others. That is the reason for the flood story in the Bible and other manuscripts. Dr. Hamnick raised his hand and says, Dr. Reich, may I offer an alternative explanation? He says, sure. Dr. Hamnick says, maybe it's because the flood happened. Maybe that's why they have it in the book. He said, there was stunning silence in the room. It was as though somebody said that which you never ever say. The ineffable has just been articulated. The most heretical statement in the history of mankind was just uttered, or so it seemed, from the deafening silence that pervaded the room. Everyone looked at him as though he was a UFO who has just landed from an alien planet. Dr. Reich, the student of Dr. Freud, looked at Dr. Hamnick, and this is what he said. I once heard from my great teacher, Dr. Freud, that we will never know who is stronger, the tiger or the polar bear. You know why? Because they can't live in a similar climate. And therefore, we never have the opportunity to observe 
them quarreling with each other and determining who is stronger. They never even come together to begin the argument. He says, well, that's you and me, the tiger and the polar bear. We don't even live and operate in the same climate. I open up my lecture with this story because in my mind it captures so much of the exchange or lack of it between two schools existing today in a very potent and powerful way in the United States of America, in Europe, and in many other parts of the world. Call it the camp of the believers versus the camp of the non-believers, or sometimes people like to pit it as the contention between religion and science. The issue is not debate. The issue is not dialogue. The issue is not even serious disagreement with serious ramifications. The issue is it sometimes seems like that in the name of open-mindedness and absolute freedom of scrutiny and research, the authentic conversation is never really tolerated or embraced. As Dr. Reich eloquently and honestly told Dr. Hamnick, we don't live in the same climate. We don't operate. We don't even fight. We don't even quarrel. I speak a lot at universities. I speak to many young students. I have the privilege of meeting many bright people from different backgrounds, religious backgrounds, formerly religious backgrounds, secular backgrounds, very secular backgrounds. Listening, I speak, or unfortunately sometimes I speak, but I also sometimes try to listen, which is not such a bad, not such a bad quality. But in these conversations, I come across a painful reality. I'm sure many of you have come across it either in personal conversation or in reading various, various materials and so forth. There is a um, preconceived notion, almost an embedded unspoken truth, that the acceptance of God's existence is by definition a fundamentalist philosophy and approach. Or it takes a leap of faith or as they call it, blind faith. What does blind faith mean? you got to be blind. There are people who don't want to be blind. They want their eyes open, wide. They want to see, they want to observe. They don't want to close their eyes. But faith demands you to shut your eyes. Don't look. What do they say? Don't ask. Don't tell. In a different context. And then you can accept God's existence. God is associated with primitiveness with extremism, sometimes, for good reason, with violence, with war, with bloodshed, with everything that is going bad with human civilization. God is a scary word for the progressive, open-minded searcher. And the young student, the 17, 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old student who's finishing high school, who's going into college, who's looking forward to a life of enlightenment and a life of clarity, either explicitly or implicitly is indoctrinated with that notion that religion, faith, in all forms, including, of course, Jewish faith, is something that is 
fine for some people, we can even tolerate it and respect it, but let's face it, all intelligent people, people who really cherish science, who cherish physics, who cherish progress, who cherish modernity, all know, in the words of Nietzsche, that God is dead. Now, I think it's important to clarify just in a few minutes how unscientific, how closed-minded, how primitive, how fundamentalist this notion is. And I'm going to address some of the reasons that this came about. And the reason I say this is Judaism, for one, has always cherished, celebrated, honored, and in many ways created the search which we call today science. The greatest Jewish sages and scholars who were completely committed to Jewish faith and the Jewish religion were simultaneously not only curious students of science, but infatuated by it, consumed by it, loyal to it. The great Maimonides, who till today is considered the greatest philosopher and the greatest codifier of Jewish law, not only of Jewish philosophy. He lived in the 12th century in Spain, then escaped to Morocco, then escaped to Israel, what was the Palestine, and then escaped to Egypt where he died in 1205. And is till today considered one of the greatest unparalleled scholars, writes in the opening of his halachic work, that there is a mitzvah in Judaism to have a relationship with God, love and fear. And the way, how does a person achieve love and awe? For Maimonides, it's the study of science. It's studying the universe. It's examining the universe. Examining the microcosm, examining the macrocosm. The miniature universe we call the human being, we call biology, neurology, it's a physiology, the, the human structure as well as the larger, the planet and the universe. He says, when a person examines this, this is the path to the love and a relationship with God. Okay, other Jewish thinkers argued with Maimonides, but it's an important point to state. It's unfair, it's unjust to say that somebody who accepts God's existence in a very sincere way is by definition a narrow-minded lunatic. I tell students, I'm not telling you to agree. I'm not telling you to accept. I'm not telling that to you. I know it's not easy to prove God's existence in a laboratory. Probably will never be able to be proven. But I also think it's extremely narrow-minded and disrespectful and fundamentalist on your part not to sit with an open mind and listen to a very intelligent conversation about the two options. And I always ask them the old age question. I said, tell me honestly. You're walking in the wilderness. You're walking in a forest. You're hiking. Your name is Stephen. And as you're walking in this path that has never, it's, it's a, what are the, the untraveled path that you and your friend are now walking by and suddenly you see a formation of rocks and the formation of rocks reads, hello. And you're like, wow, that's interesting. Hello, wow, that's cute. Okay, must have been an avalanche. 
must have been a major, major storm. It brought some pebbles and rocks together and formed an H-E-L-L-O. And then you walk another few minutes and it's like, good afternoon, how are you doing? It's like, wow, this avalanche has been quite impressive. Must have been many of them. And then you walk a little further. Hey, Stephen, it's so great that you're here. Now, of course, you can argue, there's no question you can argue that it was a coincidence. You can argue that it was random. It happened that way. Enough storms, enough avalanches, perhaps, maybe, maybe, can produce this formation of rocks. If you put enough monkeys on uh, computer keyboards, maybe trillion, actillion monkeys, I don't know the number exactly, but basically 24 zeros (laughs) of monkeys or more, or more, maybe one of them will produce a, or they'll produce a Romeo and Juliet, or a uh, Merchant of Venice, or a, uh, or a Hamlet, or maybe you'll end up with some monkey uh, poop or fertilizer on the keyboards, which would be my guess. I think they actually once tried it in, in Britain somewhere. But it's very, I don't think it's fear to say that somebody who believes or embraces the notion that these pebbles were formed by somebody who did it intentionally, (laughs) with a design, with a purpose, with a meaning, somebody who was here and consciously put these rocks together, I don't think that one could say it is stupid, it's ridiculous, it has no sense in human logic. You have to become completely blind to do it. I saw a few weeks ago an article in the Wall Street Journal and uh, it addressed something very, very fascinating, very interesting. In 1966, there was a famous cover story in Time magazine. I wasn't born yet in 1966, and everybody here seems so young, so I'm not sure anybody remembers, uh, remembers uh, the story. But in 1966, I mean, I saw a copy of it. It was a famous, historic cover of Time magazine, and... In big words, it had the question of three words, is God dead? Question mark. From then, many have accepted the cultural narrative that God is obsolete, and this is what scientific progress has created. In the ancient times, primitive people needed God to explain the universe. Now that we have science, now that we have Physics, we don't need God anymore. Yeah, a teenager came to meet me the other day, a 22-year-old boy, who grew up in a very Jewish traditional home, and he left it, and he came to speak to me. His mother forced him. So I asked him, why are you here? He says, maybe I could convince you the way I have been convinced, that when I grew up in a religious home, they didn't respect science. So therefore they had to say, God, 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 God. God created the world. God did this, God did that. Sunday through Friday, Sabbath. You know, we needed God. Now, now we don't need God. Now uh, we have science. Yet it turns out, if we could paraphrase Mark Twain, that the rumors of God's death were a little premature. More amazing yet is not that religion is such a powerful force on the planet today, and uh, sometimes in a very scary, scary way. That we can attribute to the fact that so many people are still primitive. I was watching a debate the other day of uh, uh, Dawkins, I think it was, and he said, you know, 
It's great. It's great. Because we owe a lot to Judaism. In the beginning, they believed in many, many gods. Polytheism. There were many, many gods, right? There were thousands of gods, hundreds of gods, dozens of gods. You know what the Jews did? They reduced it all to one. He said, they're getting there. Finally, they'll get to nothing. You know? From many to one, and then ultimately they'll get to nothing. But the truth is, what is most amazing is that the relatively recent case for God's existence comes from a very surprising place. It doesn't, it doesn't come from the school of religion. It doesn't come from the church. It doesn't come from the mosque. It doesn't come from the synagogue. It doesn't come from the ashrams. And it doesn't come from religious communities. It comes from science itself. Those who truly follow the path of science, without preconceived notions, with a certain sense of objectivity, may not reach conclusions, but will not be able to doubt the fact that the more we delve into the world of science, the more we delve into the mind-staggering developments in physics, and with each month and each week when progress is made, we are more overwhelmed and astounded by the discoveries, that is where, ultimately, the new idea, a notion of God, emerges. So, here is what this writer writes in the Wall Street Journal. I want to just read a, a, few, a few paragraphs of what he writes, and then I want to move on um, uh, to, uh, to the next step. The famous astronomer, uh, Carl Sagan, famously announced that there were two important criteria for a planet to support life. The right kind of star was number one, and a planet, the right distance from that star. If you have the star and the planet is the right distance, those are the two conditions to support life. Given the fact that we have roughly actillion planets in the universe, and that is one followed by 24 zeros. There should have been about septillion, which is one followed by 21 zeros, planets capable of supporting life. With such spectacular odds that there is so much life out there. So what happened? The search for intelligence, extraterrestrial intelligence, began in its full passion and its full intensity. The project was launched in the 1960s. A lot, a lot of money was put into it. Scientists were listening for any signal that resembled some coded intelligence from our neighbors in our large universe that wasn't merely random. Years passed, and the silence from the rest of the universe was deafening. It seemed like we were still the ones making the most noise, of course, among us, the Jews, even more than others. So in 1993, Congress defunded what was known as SETI, S-E-T-I, but the search continued through private funds. In the meantime, 2015, all the research has produced what our grandmothers would call bupkis, which means zero followed by nothing. <laughs> What happened? What happened? What happened was our knowledge of the universe increased. 
Maybe we'll still find it. I'm not, I'm not saying we're not going to find it. I'm very happy to meet my neighbor from a different world. But as knowledge of the universe increased, it became clear that there were far more factors necessary for life to be supported on any given planet. The two parameters that were discussed in the 1960s grew to 10, then to 20, then to 50. And so the number of potentially life-supporting planets decreased accordingly. The number dropped to a few thousand planets and kept on plummering, realizing that there are too many factors necessary for a planet to support life. Now what happens, they continue to discover more factors that are necessary for a planet to support life. And the number of possible planets to support life hit zero. And they keep on going. In other words, the odds turned against any planet in the universe, including us. (laughs) Including us. In other words... Probability said that even we should not be here considering all the factors necessary. Today, today, 2015, there, and there's no argument about this, at least at the moment, there are more than 200 known parameters necessary for a planet to support life. Every single one of these 200 must be perfectly met. If not, the whole thing falls apart. Without, for example, a massive planet like Jupiter nearby, whose gravity will draw away asteroids, a thousand times as many would hit the surface of Earth. So the odds against life in the universe are simply astounding when you study even a few of these factors, never mind all 200 and the fact that all of them have to be met precisely, and if one is missing, we cannot simply survive. Yet... Believe it or not, here we are at the National Jewish Retreat on a planet called Earth. I know some of you may be sleeping or daydreaming, but even in your daydream or sleep, we are here. Not only existing, that's a halbatsara. We're even talking about it. We're talking about the fact we're existing. What can account for this? Can it be that every single one of these many hundreds of parameters have been here perfectly together by accident? Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) I can't tell you not. Maybe they're all here by accident. No question. But I think as an objective, intelligent, not such a closed-minded person, one can at least entertain the notion that it may be semi-intelligent. I don't want to say, God forbid, intelligent. But maybe it's semi-intelligent to admit that there is another option than just saying that this is a result of random forces. Perhaps assuming that an intelligence, an intelligent reality, a purposeful reality, created these perfect conditions. Maybe it doesn't require blind faith to accept that a life-sustaining earth just happened to beat the inconceivable odds to be able to come into being and to exist the way we know it as we are experiencing that right now. But you often won't hear this type of conversation. Now you could still argue both ways. 
but a regular university student, an intelligent kid, blind, fundamentalist, ISIS. The conversation is immediately about ISIS. But the truth is it's more than this. It's more than this. Because the fine-tuning necessary for life to exist on a planet is nothing compared with the fine-tuning required for the universe to exist at all. The fact that there's life on a planet is one astonishing reality. But that there should be a universe at all? For example, for example, the article quotes, astrophysicists now know that the values of the four fundamental forces, gravity, the electromagnetic force, and the strong and weak nuclear forces, were determined less than one millionth of a second after the Big Bang. All the force, the four forces, were determined less than one millionth of a second after the Big Bang. If you would alter any one value of this, the universe could never be. So for example, the ratio between the nuclear strong force and the electromagnetic force, if it had been off, by the tiniest fraction of the tiniest fraction, by even one part of a trillion, there is no stars could have ever formed at all. Now multiply this single parameter by hundreds and hundreds of other necessary conditions. The odds against a universe existing are so astronomical, are so powerful, that the notion that it just happened almost defies common sense. In any other area of life, if somebody would postulate such a notion, it just happened, we would say, you might be a certified Meshuggah. You know what it's like? I once asked my students, if I toss a coin, I throw up a coin, and it comes up heads, Ten quintillion times in a row. Not ten times, not a million times, not a zillion times. Ten quintillion times in a row. Really? Random? And that's exactly, and much more, what it takes for our universe to simply exist randomly. There was the famous uh, Fred Hoyle who coined the term Big Bang. And he wrote, and I quoted it, I wanted to have the quote, he said his atheism was greatly shaken at the developments of what he discovered with the Big Bang. A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics, as well as with chemistry and biology. The numbers one calculates, the numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. The greatest miracle of all times, without any close seconds, is the universe. And within the universe, planet Earth. And every moment of our existence. It's the miracle of oral miracles. It trumps every other miracle you have ever read about or heard about. We come to the next question. Okay. Great, but who needs it? I mean, fine, so there's a God. There's no God. Is it really so important? Is the conversation so important? And what about the bigger question? 
Look how much bloodshed is being spilled in the name of God. Look at the world today. Fundamentalist Islam has redefined modernity as we know it. And although some people won't give it a name and won't associate it with religion, but we all know that any major terrorist act, or at least most of them that we observe, sadistic, barbaric torture of human beings comes from groups who swear in the name of Allah and the name of his so-called prophet Muhammad and are ready to die for it and to kill for it. This means it's a very, very dangerous notion. It's a very scary notion. And I think it's very important to address this, especially today. And I think the ones who have to address it more than anybody else are the Jews, because we are ultimately responsible for introducing this Allah, this God, into the conversation of humanity with Abraham. Ultimately, Islam, Christianity, all identify themselves as Abrahamic, monotheistic faiths. So in many ways, you know, the mommy and the tati who created this whole problem, who created this whole issue, have to stand up and speak out today. Which is why perplex, it's perplexing, in my opinion, that Jews, Jewish scholars, Jewish thinkers, rabbis, spiritual leaders, don't speak as much about this as it is important because it's such a crucial issue and it really is about the future of civilization. Let's speak for a moment about who needs God. What does this knowledge do for any of us? What does it do for humanity? I think it's important to acknowledge two factors. There's no question that a person could be religious and behave in horrible ways. A person can believe in God and do despicable things. A person can be an atheist and have a heart of gold and do and behave in the most fine, ethical, moral, sensitive and respectful way. You all know religious people whose behavior, let's put it this way, is wanting. And you all know people who are very not religious, they may even be agnostics or atheists, who maybe wouldn't even hurt a fly. That's not a question. We all know it. A person can believe anything and still be a good person. You can believe that the entire planet Earth sits on the back of a turtle and still be a wonderful person. Respect your father and mother and don't do unto others what you don't like to be done to yourself and, and give charity and even come to the National Jewish Retreat while believing that planet Earth rests on the back of a turtle or on your own back. That's more common. We call it narcissism. That's not a question. The question is something else. The question is, is it more likely for people to behave honestly and goodly and in a good way with the notion that they have a God? And is there even an objective definition of good and evil without God? Dostoevsky's famous words, without God everything is permissible, have to be taken seriously because let's explain it for a moment. I was listening to a radio show some time ago and this uh, woman called in the radio show host and he asked her a question. She was screaming about the fact that uh, mice don't have the amount of rights that humans have. And mice should be given the same rights like humans. After all, she loves mice and they're creatures just like we are. So this man asked her a question, and I kid you not, I listened to this. He asked her as follows, I have a question. If you were standing near the street, and 
a child ran into the street, there was a truck coming, and a mouse ran into the street and there was a truck coming, and you could save one. Who would you save, the child or the mouse? She said, I can't tell you that I would save the child over the mouse. He was shocked. He said, really? It's a question. She says, yes. He says, how do you entertain this question? She said, you are primitive. You are subjective. You're speaking as a human being. You decided that human life is superior to the life of mice. But that's a completely subjective notion. In my book, who says that? I love mice as much as I love humans. In fact, I love them more than humans. And she spoke very intelligently about the fact that all truth is relative. What for you is truth is for me, your feeling. My truth is for your feeling. You hate it, I love it. And really it dawned on me that really what she was saying is, you can't say something is good and something is bad. It's like chocolate and vanilla ice cream. Yeah, I like vanilla ice cream. I hate chocolate ice cream. I'm sure some of you love chocolate ice cream, no? Uh, my wife. I don't like chocolate ice cream. I like vanilla. So imagine I see my wife having a chocolate ice cream. I say, Esti, that is horrific. It's evil. It's despicable. Please, just because it's distasteful, it becomes despicable? You don't like it, so say you don't like it. It's not evil. But I ask you something else. Is that not true about everything in the world? How can anybody say this is good, this is evil? How could you make such a judgment? You could speak from your perspective, from your perception. I was once Friday night in a person's home, and we were discussing uh, morality. There were students from Brandeis University there. Now, Brandeis University is a very Jewish uh, university in Massachusetts. I think there's probably some, from here, some here too at the Sinai Scholars Conference. This was a few years ago. And uh, he grew up in the university climate. In the university climate, you're not allowed to make judgments. You're not allowed to make judgments. So, for example, I asked the student, would you say... Would you be able to make a judgment and say, okay, that as a society, as a society, the society in Israel, meaning the atmosphere, the laws, not individual people, but as a society, the society in Israel is superior to some other societies in the Muslim world. Would you be prepared to say that? They said, how could you say that? There are good and bad people everywhere. I said, I agree with you. I'm not asking good and bad people. Can you say that the society as a society, the belief system, its doctrines, what it adheres to, what it educates its children, is morally superior? We cannot make such a judgment. And you know, when the Soviet Union was around, my grandfather, my grandfather was arrested and tortured and almost executed for years together with another 40 million people under Stalin. And many in the West, many enlightened intellectuals in the West, could not call a spade a spade. When Reagan called it the axis of evil, they were abhorrent. They went crazy. They could not. The evil empire. Sorry, I don't mean to confuse with Bush. They couldn't agree. They could not say that the culture or the society in the West is superior in any way. Even though there... In the law was enshrined horrific, horrific edicts against millions and millions of people. So I'm speaking about this to the students. And the students say, who are we to judge? This particular student, great, bright kid. He's tall, he's handsome, he's slim, he's intelligent, he's good looking, he's 20 years old. 
getting a nice degree, I'm like, okay, can you say that what Hitler did was evil? He says, I don't use the word evil. I said, you know that he murdered six million Jews, your own, probably some of your own relatives, a million and a half children, that's not evil? What is evil? He says, he thought he was doing the right thing. Rabbi Jacobson, do you have, do you have a trap in your house that catches mice? Do you kill chickens? Do you eat chicken? Do you eat meat? Now, I'm not saying you're Hitler. All I'm saying is, you have your philosophy. He believed that Jews, blacks, gypsies, homosexuals, mentally retarded, are ruining the earth. He was wrong. I don't like it, in my opinion. But that's my opinion. I was shocked. I didn't believe that a Jew could speak like this 70 years after Auschwitz. Just like it's very hard for me to believe that 80 Hollywood Jews uh, gave out their uh, Ten Commandments uh, uh, yesterday about Iran. It's very hard for me to believe. I don't, I don't have an issue with a disagreement. I'm fine with different perspectives. I'm not as close-minded as I look and as I sound. I'm fine. But I'm dumbfounded by an absolute lack of what I think is knowledge of history believing your enemy when he says he wants to kill you and basic common sense. Anyway, I'm talking to the student and he, he says his, I say mine. Okay, I held myself back. Dinner begins, they serve, uh, they serve the different meals and then they bring out the chicken. I say, uh, you're not going to eat? You're not going to eat? He says, I wouldn't do such an evil thing as eating a chicken. I'm like, wow. You couldn't call the Holocaust evil. But this you're calling evil? How does that work? How does that work? This you call evil, that you couldn't call evil? And then I realized something that's extremely sad. And that is, we have to understand the truth without an objective source transcending any particular human being, defining some things as moral and some things as immoral, there's no way you could say anything is good or bad. All you can say is, I like it, I dislike it. Now, if people were naturally good and saintly, I would say, so what? So we don't have anybody defining it. If people were trained essentially genetically to be saintly and selfless and kind, okay. That's how the program works. Who cares? But we know that people, people are capable of the greatest and deepest atrocities. We need education, education, education to direct people and guide people. You know, they say you could live off credit cards for three years without having a dime. But after three years, it's going to catch up on you, right? America could still live off the ancient Judeo values that are at the core of America and have sustained this nation for centuries, we could still live off it because there's still a notion of what it means to be a good person, what it means to be an ethical person. But don't take it for granted. Religious people have produced a lot of darkness in this world. But Stalin, who killed 50 million people, spoke in the name of an absolute secular ideology. Adolf Hitler spoke in the name of a secular ideology. Pol Pot spoke in the name of a secular ideology. The greatest 
arch enemies of the Jewish people and of civilization who have exterminated dozens of millions of people, spoke in the name of a secular ideology. Which brings us to the question, doesn't religion produce so much violence today? Of course religion produces much violence today, as it has always. But is it true that if we get rid of God, we get rid of religion, there would be no violence? Is that the case? Hitler spoke in the name of religion, Stalin spoke in the name of religion. Mai Tung spoke in the name of religion in the Cultural Revolution in China or in Cambodia spoke in the name of religion. These were all secular ideologies. We fight because that's what people do. The cause of wars in the world is not religion. The cause of wars in the world is people. We fight. We fight about parking lots. We fight about houses. We fight about car keys. We fight about God. We fight about territory. We fight about control. We fight about power. We fight about race. We fight. The human condition is programmed in a way that we get into wars. The wars have began, have begun with the first person. Adam and Eve had two children, and the next scene was one killed the other. Why did Cain kill Abel? The Midrash gives three reasons. The Bible is not clear about it. The Midrash says three reasons. One reason is Abel was born with an extra twin. Cain was born with a twin girl, and Abel was born with a twin girl, and an extra one. So they got into a fight. Who gets that extra girl? Cain said, I'm the oldest, I get two. Abel said, she's my twin, she's my wife. So he killed Hevel. That's one interpretation. A second interpretation was, they fought, this is what the Midrash says, they fought where the holy temple should be. Cain said, in my place, Abel said, in my place, he killed him. A third interpretation was, Cain and Abel said, you know, we have this whole planet called Earth, let's divide it. Great. So Cain tells Abel, you know what, I'll take the real estate, you take everything movable. Abel said, okay, that works. Cain looks at Abel and he says, you're standing in my real estate, get out of here. Abel says, you're wearing my clothes, give them to me. And so they get into a fight and Cain kills Abel. You see what the Midrash is trying to say? These are the three biggest reasons that people have been killing each other. Territory, sexuality, religion. Territory, sexuality, religion. You don't need religion to fight. If it is religion, you put that into the equation. However, here is where we need religion. Who were the first ones to speak about the fact that there is a brotherhood in mankind, that we're really connected, that we all have rights that can't be taken away from us? Without the idea of God, who says we're equal? Who says we all have rights? Evolution says it. Nature says it. Molecular biology says it. Quantum physics says it. Who says you have rights? Who says that the strong should not defeat the weak? Doesn't nature dictate that the strong defeat the weak? Where does nature say we're all connected? Maybe we're not all connected. Where does nature tell me to care for you? The idea that we're all one because we come from one mother. We're all brothers and sisters because we come from one womb. This is by definition a religious idea. This is the idea articulated in the Tanakh by the prophets who spoke about the day when one nation shall not pick up a sword against another nation and not declare war. This is a religious vision. Can religion produce monsters? Sure. Joseph Mengele was a doctor. What did he do with his medicine and his knowledge of medicine? He performed some of the most sadistic experiments in human history. Is the solution to shut down every hospital and get rid of kill every doctor? 
What would Jews do? What would Jewish mothers hope for? He says that the Ravner says they'll become lawyers. The solution for the problem of religion is not to eliminate religion, just like it's not to eliminate medicine, it's to search. It's to search for the God that calls on humanity to love each other. And his greatest message is, you're all connected, you're all one, you come from one singular purposeful source. Something very interesting in Judaism, my dear friends. Namely, you all know the Ten Commandments, the two tablets, five and five. Why two tablets? There's a shortage of granite in heaven. Why couldn't God give it on one tablet? So there's the anti-Semitic joke. God came to the Jew, He came to everybody, He came to the Jews. You want the Ten Commandments? How much? The Jews said, God said it's for free. They said give us two. But really, why two tablets? Why not one? So the Midrash says, God wanted that the Ten Commandments should be read vertically and horizontally. So that's why there's two. So you could put the second one under the first one and read them vertically, or you could put them side by side and read the Ten Commandments horizontally. Five and five vertically and horizontally. Who cares? No, it's important to read them in both directions. So you could read them 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, or you could read them as follows. 1, 6, 2, 7, 3, 8, 4, 9, 5, 10. Who cares? This is the explanation why he gave two tablets. So I'm going to give you two examples. Number 1, number 6, and then number 5 and number 10. Number one, what's commandment number one, you remember? Or as they say today, suggestion number one. <laughs> what's suggestion number one? I am your God. It's taking you out of Egypt. Number two, don't have any other gods. What's number six? Lotir Tzach, thou shall not murder. That's number six. Number five, respect your father and mother. Number ten, don't covet. Your friend's wife, your friend's home, your friend's BMW, Jaguar, private jet. You do, any, you do covet? Don't, don't. <laughs> Easier said than done. Okay, fine. Covets, but the health of Heinz Bismarck. Aftaita Bankers. What's the connection? I want to show you how history demonstrates the depth here. There have been two movements in modern times that made one attempt, and that is sever number one from number six. One movement said, we have number six, we don't need number one. The other movement says, we have number one, who cares for number six? The first, I speak about the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment which began in the 17th century in Western Europe and then progressed with the great philosophers of the Enlightenment introduced a new notion. Europe was dominated by the church, by Christianity. The Enlightenment said that if we allow human reason alone to dictate human behavior, we can have an enlightened and progressive universe. The great philosophers of the Enlightenment, whether we're dealing with Hume or Voltaire or Nietzsche or Rousseau or Kant, etc., all highlighted the value of intellectualism, of human reason. It produced the French Revolution in 1789, 
etc., the brotherhood, the liberty of man, which is based on human reason, get God out of the picture. Who needs God? God is the excuse that popes and kings can control the masses. But with human reason, we can truly create a beautiful and noble society. And it was intoxicating. And let's face it, it was promising. And for no one as much as Jews who suffered so much as a result of religion. Islam and even more Christianity. People hailed Napoleon as the Messiah. But it was, a, it was an inebriating moment in Jewish history. The walls of the ghetto came crumbling down. No more do we define you based on your religion. People serve according to the whistles of their heart. What combines us is a doctrine that combines humanity that is based on individual will and the power of reason. This philosophy said, get rid of number one. And you have number six, thou shalt not murder. What a disappointment it has been when 100, 150 years later, the gas chambers were invented by that people that produced the greatest philosophers, most PhDs, greatest musicians, scientists, poets, thinkers, won the most Nobel Prizes, Germany. And Jews have secularized there more successfully than any other people. And yet from there came the greatest venom, the worst hatred, the worst evil, unparalleled in the long, bloody, bloody annals of human and Jewish history. I still remember that scene in Schindler's List. It's the Krakow ghetto. The SS liquidates the ghetto. You remember the scene? There's a little girl who hides in a piano. She thinks the SS are gone. She comes out of the piano. She trips over one of the keys. The SS in the bottom here. The voice. They hear the sound of music. They run up. They see a little Jewish girl. Three of them are standing by the door. One jumps over to the piano and starts playing. The other one shoots the little girl dead. As she lay in a river of blood, the third one turns to the executor. Pointing to the piano, he says, Mozart? The killer looks at him in disgust and he says, Nein, Bach! How can you be such a moron to confuse Mozart with Bach? As the little girl drowns in her blood. For me, it brought home the truth of it. Not that I needed that scene, but it brought it home in such a visual way. You weren't dealing here with uneducated, primitive barbarians. You were dealing here with people who truly were romantic and cultured and progressive in many ways. And yet, relying on human reason alone, they were capable of producing the most monstrous evil in the history of mankind. Elie Wiesel tells a story. He was once by the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he asked the Rebbe a question. He said, how can you believe in God after the Holocaust? Not a bad question. And you know what? Wiesel survived Auschwitz. Buchenwald. He lost many members of his family. He was born in Sigit. And he said, I heard this from him. He said, the Lubavitcher Rebbe looked at him very emotionally. And he said, who do you want me to believe in after the Holocaust? Man? If there's any faith at all left after the Holocaust, it must be rooted in a source that transcends human subjectivity. That's what happened to the attempt of getting rid of number one. Because number six without number one can work if you have old, if you have old money. 
but the credit cards are going to run out after three years. And ultimately, if I teach my child, you are a mistake. There's no God. This world is an error. You are a random mutation just like the rest of the planet, like just like the universe. So why shouldn't I lie? Why shouldn't I cheat on my wife? Well, it's not nice. You don't want them to do it to you. That's all good. And for some it will work. The police might catch you. But let's face it. You can't say it's wrong. Nor is morality deep. It's basically about you deciding to be nice. And I ask you another question. Forgive me, this is a very sensitive subject. That boy, Adam Lanzo, went into the Connecticut school. What was the name of the school? And shot the 26 kids. Sandy Hook, right? Sandy Hook. I right away wanted to read. What is the response? Of course, the big response was gun control. The second response is, we're not taking care of the mental challenges of our children. He was on the spectrum. Either he had Asperger's syndrome, or he was on the spectrum of autism. I beg to ask you a very innocent and sincere question. I know many, many people on the spectrum. Asperger's and autism. I know some of them intimately. I have people who are very close to my heart that are on the spectrum. Some more severe, some less severe. But I know that with all their challenges, and they have many challenges, they would never put bullet into the mouths of 21 children. You know why? They're not completely meshuggah. Because they were educated from the milk of their mother with a notion that there is something called good and there's something called evil. And that you're accountable for it. And there's somebody who watches you and sees you. And you were created by this being to do good and to abstain from evil so that every fiber of their being is permeated with this. There are complete Meshagayim who are not in control of themselves. Adam Lanza was not one of them. We don't speak about what matters. Speak about education, values. You're not educating kids with real values. Gun control is an important conversation. Mental health care is a critical conversation. But the most vital conversation is, what am I telling our youngsters about being nice to people, about values, this depends on the question if we eliminate God from our schools, from our houses, from our societies, from our public conversations, from our meals. That's why we need it. Is ISIS the alternative? ISIS feeds off a void. First of all, they feed off their own indoctrination and they feed off a void of people who are looking for meaning and empty and succumb and sell their souls to the heinous evil that ISIS today produces, which is unfathomable and brought us right back to the Middle Ages, the way they torture and destroy people. And I conclude finally with this thought. I think we have to remember, we have a lot of depression in our midst today. A lot of depression. Speak to many youngsters, you all know this from our own lives, our kids' lives. A lot of depression. And the depression is not coming because our kids don't have what to eat. Thank God. Our boys and girls, just like we have things today that our grandparents and great-grandparents didn't dream of. First of all, the time that we have. (laughs) The prosperity that we have. Even those of us who struggle financially, and may you all not, 
But we know that the prosperity we have today, thank God, in the United States of America, at least most of us, is far beyond what our great-great-grandparents could even dream of. We do have one major crisis, and that is a crisis is we have been taught, or many of us have been taught, that our lives are meaningless. If my entire existence is a mistake, if it's basically a random statistical error that happened as a result of an explosion, so that means inherently my life has no meaning, my struggles have no meaning, my future has no meaning, my destiny has no meaning. My life really doesn't add up to anything besides my own subjective emotions and my mother's anxiety. That's where a creator changes the conversation. I have to conclude with this anecdote. I know my time is probably up. Okay, let me conclude with this anecdote. There was a bar mitzvah, and a boy tells his father, I want, his mother, I want to speak about our lineage. Where do we come from? And his mother says, where do we come from? We come from Adam and Eve and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and God. Oh, wow. Comes to his father. His father was an enlightened graduate of Columbia. Dad, where do we come from? Dad says, we have evolved from apes. And where have the apes come from? They have evolved from other primates. And where did it all begin? It began with an explosion of gas and bacteria. Comes back to his mother. He says, I'm confused about my bar mitzvah speech. I want to speak about where we come from. You tell me Adam, Eve, God. Dad tells me apes, monkeys, and bacteria. What's the truth? Mom says there's no contradiction. Your father was talking about his side of the family. I'm talking about my side of, uh, of the family. Friends, we each have two sides in our family. We have our mother's side of our family. We have our father's side in our family. The ramifications of the two sides are very, very important. Because on balance stands the question who we are really, and what we are really capable of. Thank you very much.